Episode 268 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by Self-Publishing School. Get free training on how to go from blank page to published author in as little as 90 days and a free book when you visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash published right now. tell people don't be afraid of getting productive conflict wrong because when you get it wrong you get the best chance in the world to reinforce that it matters to be vulnerable and strengthen your trust good things happen hi there welcome to the read to lead podcast the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth my name is jeff brown and i believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life then intentional and consistent reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will help you narrow this ever-important reading list and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Uh, today's guest is a New York Times best-selling author, and her name is Leanne Davey. Her new book is called The Good Fight. Use Productive Conflict to get your team and organization back on track. I'll ask Leanne to share about conflict aversion and its cousin, conflict avoidance, how to tackle both with a new conflict mindset, some practical tips for proactively building trust with your colleagues, and much, much more. You know, quick side note before we introduce Leanne, if you are one who struggles with occasional negative self-talk, and I think we all do uh, to some degree or another. I want to mention a book I just finished this morning. It's a book that was first published back in 1986 and was uh, republished in 2017. The author is Shad Helmstetter, and it's called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself, Powerful New Techniques to Program Your Potential for Success. I loved the book personally, and there are a lot of examples in the book for reprogramming your brain, things you can say and do on a daily basis that help you rid your brain of that negative programming you've received and replace it with new, powerful programs. You see, the author contends that most of what happens to you happens because of you, something you created, directed, influenced, or allowed to happen. Many of us have picked up some negative signals along the way, and these signals create our beliefs. These beliefs create our attitudes. Our attitudes create feelings. Our feelings determine our actions, and our actions create our results. So if we can go back to the beginning and sort of reprogram ourselves, we can impact those beliefs in a positive way, which creates better attitudes, which creates more positive feelings more often, which determines better actions, and those actions create the results we're looking for. Again, it's called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. And having just finished it and loved it, I would highly recommend it. And one more time, the author's name, Shad, S-H-A-D, Helmstetter. I'll put a link in the show notes. Dr. Leanne Davey is a New York Times best-selling author and a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. As the co-founder of Three Co's Inc., she has worked with executives at companies like Amazon, Walmart, Aviva, 3M, TD Bank, and Sony, among others. Her brand new book, the one we're talking about today, uh, destined to be another bestseller, I'm sure, is called The Good Fight. Uh-oh. Use productive conflict to get your team and organization back on track. Leanne, it is my uh, distinct pleasure to welcome you to the Read to Lead podcast. So glad you're here. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I want to get into some uh, specifics about conflict uh, aversion here in just a moment. Maybe we'll even 
dissect some of my wife's personal issues. No, just kidding. <laughs> but uh, but <laughs> that's the last chapter of the book, Jeff. It's that's called right. "Try This at Home." <laughs> so yes, yes. Well, uh, let's talk first about the, this term. I think you've coined. Um, at least it was the first time I had heard it. Conflict debt. What do you mean when you talk about conflict debt exactly? Yeah. So I, what I mean is all those issues and discussions and decisions that you really need to surface and work through and resolve that instead you have just left piling up like that debt on your credit card and you're, <laughs> you're paying interest on it month after month. So that's conflict debt. And it's funny. I'm glad you like the term because other people seem to be responding similarly. As soon as mm. I say it, they know what I mean. Uh-oh, mm. I got some of those. <laughs> <laughs> now, what would be some examples of that, let's say, uh, that we need to watch out for in, in, our, in our businesses? Yeah. So let me give you a conflict debt at three different levels. Okay. So at the organization level, so this is really where we're talking about business conflict debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, conflict debt, failure to prioritize. So we need to have a really tough decision about which uh, strategic project is most important, which business unit we're going to double down on in in this fiscal year, uh, those kinds of decisions that you need to make. And because it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be perceived as winners and losers and because uh, leaders tend to want to do it all, even though their resources are constrained, we tend to let prioritization become our biggest conflict debt. So it's at the organization level. At the team level, common ones, unfair allocation of workload, uh, dealing with interpersonal conflict, you've got a jerk on the team, or you've got the opposite end, you've got somebody who's behaving like the victim on the team, and those issues go undiscussed and unresolved. So that's at the team level. And then personally, it's usually around self-advocacy. So I don't feel recognized or rewarded for my contribution. I don't feel I'm being developed. I've been unfairly passed up for promotion. And rather than raising those issues, uh, we let them be another part of that conflict debt. Uh, so it happens at all levels. And of course, as you mentioned, it happens at home too, right? <laughs> Where uh, we have issues around, you know, what kind of vacations we like to take and, and one member of a family likes one type and one likes another and they keep going on these vacations and being unhappy because they don't actually resolve the issue or the way we spend money in, in our families or there, there's all sorts of uh, conflict debt that, uh, that exists there. So it, it's everywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> well, there are, uh, I don't know that you mentioned any specifically, but there, there are indirect costs to conflict debt too, right? How do, how do those tend to manifest themselves? Right. Yeah. So that's what I call the interest on the conflict okay. debt, those indirect costs. So let's take uh, the examples that we started with. So if we take organizational conflict debt and that, that failure to prioritize, the interest we pay on that conflict debt is the dilution of our resources, right? So uh, in, in that case, we are are uh, not getting return on investment on those projects. People are overworked. We're seeing burnout. Um, And so that's what happens. Our our projects fail to execute fully and our people are the walking wounded just trying to live through the workload. So that's big interest that we pay when we fail to prioritize. At the team level, if we allow poor behavior or unfair allocation of workload, the interest we pay on that tends to be the erosion of trust uh, and disengagement that results. And at the personal level, the big interest we're paying is in our quality of life and in our health. Mm. So these costs are profound. 
So we're seeing stats on how poorly people are sleeping on Sunday nights because of the stress of going back to work on Monday. Uh, We're seeing skyrocketing rates of short-term disability associated with the stress of work. Uh, And a lot of that, I believe, is is directly linked to we don't know how to advocate for ourselves uh, constructively, and therefore we don't, and, and this debt piles up. And then we feel like we have no alternative but to kind of declare bankruptcy and and go off and quit or or go on stress leave. So in many ways, the indirect costs of our conflict debts are as costly and painful as the direct costs themselves. Well, I want to get into in just a moment conflict avoidance, but I want to stay with the conflict aversion for just just a second. So many of us, it seems, tend to be conflict averse. Um, (laughs) Where does this begin? Like, what are the things happening in childhood typically that lend themselves to us growing up to be conflict averse? Right. So it begins before birth because we're biologically wired <laughs> well, to get along with our in-group, right? So so we're already behind the eight ball on having healthy conflict. Okay. And then how are we socialized? Well, I don't know if you had a grandma like mine who who used to say, if you can't say anything nice, oh, yeah. don't say anything. <laughs> of course, uh, I'm Canadian, so um, we're passive aggressive here. So it's more, <laughs> if you can't say anything nice, wait till we're in the car. Um, that's, that's more how Canadians roll. You, you, you Americans think we're nice. We're actually just passive aggressive. Um, it's very true. Um, so that if you can't say anything nice, uh, don't say anything uh, to their face at the least. That makes us conflict averse. Mind your own business. That language is a huge problem. If you're saying mind your own business to, to people who are trying to have a positive impact on somebody else's relationship or communication, you need to stop because minding our own business is how we get into problems like the Me Too uh, issue mm-hmm. is people were minding their own business. Uh, the other big one that I've seen a lot is is as children we learn that when we when someone gets emotional. So as a kid, if you make somebody cry, you know this adult materializes out of nowhere, hands <laughs> on hips, giving you the now look what you've done. Uh, and and you learn very early on that oh emotions must be bad because this adult mm-hmm. is angry or or frustrated. Uh, and secondly, that someone else's emotions are your fault. So we are loath to make someone emotional in the workplace now. So we've got all these things. And of course, let's not forget, you know, be good and stay out of trouble, which is, you know, why we avoid conflict, especially uh, in speaking truth to power is because we're so worried about being fired. So we have all these voices. I I call them the itty bitty committee that sits on (laughs) your shoulder and whispers these things in your ear. So it's no surprise that, you know, both with the biological wiring and then all this strong socialization and, and many of your listeners, I'm sure can recall a time when in a performance review, they were told that they're too direct or too blunt or, or got in trouble in some way in the workplace for for having conflict, even if it was productive conflict. So there's a lot uh, going against this movement that I'm trying to (laughs) instill of having Mm. more conflict, not less. And conflict aversion if if I understand you correctly, it's not necessarily something that's going to go away. It's the it's a conflict <laughs> avoidance that we need to sort of tackle head on. And I love the analogy you you use to illustrate this: the exercise analogy. 
<laughs> you're outing me as a fitness averse person. <laughs> okay, so let's let we're talking turkey now. So uh, yes, so it was the epiphany came to me uh, through my aversion to exercise rather than through my aversion to conflict, which is very strong. <laughs> both both of which are very strong. So what it was was uh, I hadn't been exercising. I, I don't like exercising, and at some point I started to realize, uh, and as a facilitator and a keynote speaker, uh, it, it's important to be comfortable on your feet all day. And I was starting to get old enough that I was getting a sore back. Mm. And and so I realized I needed to start strengthening my core so that I could get through the work week. So I got a trainer and I started doing these abdominal exercises, which are just brutal. I <laughs> hate this. Um, you know, <laughs> sitting there in plank and eventually in plank where my elbows are on a big round ball. And, you know, he's trying to make it cooler and more unusual as we go. And, and I thought at some point that these abdominal exercises would get less uncomfortable. And I'm five years in now. And I was doing it yesterday with my, you know, arms on on a ball and my feet on a half ball, wiggling and jiggling and, and trying so hard to stay still. And I'm thinking, nope, five years later, I still hate this. It's still uncomfortable. And, and what mysteriously started happening was that I started noticing at four o'clock that my back wasn't sore. And I started being mm. able to wear nice shoes and, and look nice on stage in my keynotes without, mm. uh, you know, winding up very uncomfortable. And I realized that, oh, these three 10 minute abdominal workouts a week were making the whole rest of the week much more comfortable. So this little bit of discomfort uh, was, was making my life much more comfortable. And it was only then that I had the epiphany about conflict. And, and I am very conflict averse. And as you say, I always will be. I know that that's how I'm wired. I mm. like to be liked. I like to get along. I like harmony. And those voices whispering in my ear, I try and, and damp them out as much as possible, but they're still there. And so I'm always going to be conflict averse. But I realized, ah, just like I'm always going to be fitness averse, I'm not fitness avoidant. I still get my bottom to that gym three times a week. And similarly, I I cannot be conflict avoidant. And and 10 minutes of uncomfortable conversation three times a week is going to make uh, my team work better. It's going to make my business better. It's going to strengthen my relationships. So that's now how I think about it. So I never ask people anymore to, to not be conflict averse. I just say, yep, okay. Yep, it, it's always going to be uncomfortable for you. Good. Now let's move on. Let's talk about what you're going to do to uh, to not avoid these conflicts and to make sure that that the rest of your week is good because you were willing to be a little bit uncomfortable. Well, as I was reading the book, I, I thought back to a couple of sort of knockdown, drag out fights uh, in in my work history that yeah. that could have easily been avoided had I been willing to have those earlier uncomfortable conversations that I tried so desperately to avoid that just blew up later. It's the ultimate irony for people who don't like conflict. It, it's a vicious cycle because when you avoid it, by the time the conflict erupts, it's really unhealthy and really mm. unpleasant, which just reinforces, see, see how horrible <laughs> conflict is. But if you'd had it, as you said, if, you, if you'd had a smaller, less obtrusive, less uncomfortable conversation earlier, you would actually learn you don't have those blowouts very seldom and you actually get reinforced 
first in learning that, oh, conflict's fine. I can do this. So we, we get ourselves into either a vicious cycle of conflict avoidance or a virtuous cycle of productive conflict. And I know which one I've chosen to have. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about if you can't be nice, don't say anything at all, mind your own business, uh, stay out of trouble, those sorts of things. You address these, I think it's in chapter three, if I'm not mistaken, with the mm-hmm. new conflict mindset. You've hinted at some of this, but I wonder if you might go into more detail, Leanne, about things like kind is the new nice yeah. and some of the yeah. other ways to tackle <laughs> some of these issues. I love kind is the new nice because I think every time that I come up to an uncomfortable conversation I want to have and grandma whispers in my ear, oh, Leanne, that's not nice. <laughs> I, I I tell her to stuff it because <laughs> not telling the person usually is not kind. And so I've replaced nice with kind. So let's take the case of, of this person is giving a presentation and they are going on and on and you can see everybody checking their phones and right. So it's not going to be nice to tell the person that their conversation or that their presentation was too lengthy, that it didn't punch the key points. You know, it's not going to be nice. I agree. But it's certainly kind because there's a bunch of people sitting around that room uh, discounting this person's future. Mm -hmm. His work is having less impact. So therefore, everything he's slaving away at has less of a meaningful contribution. It's not kind to let someone continue in a way that's uh, not optimal for him or for the team or for the organization. So if if you replace the word kind, I feel like you, you end up with many different outcomes. I put it into my favorite story. I was a senior in high school. I was a dork. I used to wear skirts. um, And I was at my locker one day, pulled all my books down off the shelf, put them on the floor, put back the ones I didn't need, picked up my books and watched the entire length of the high school. Arrived in my biology homeroom when my teacher informed me that I had caught my skirt in the books and walked the entire length of the school with my skirt hitched up in my books. Mm. And no one had told me because I believe it wouldn't have been nice. Mm. Uh, it sure would have been kind. (laughs) So I I always have that picture in my head, Leanne, are you letting this person walk through the organization exposed Mm. because you're not willing to to give them feedback? And that's, I, I talk about with my clients, I talk about candor and candor is my willingness to be uncomfortable for your benefit. And I wish somebody had been candid with me in that moment, right? It's, it, I am willing to be candid with you, which is I am willing to be uncomfortable for your benefit. And that's that's kindness. So that's one. The mind your own business one is another one that we need this new mindset. So not only does minding our own business allow these, uh, you know, pariahs like like these sexual harassers to go on. But in much more minor situations, like a couple of teammates squabbling with one another or a boss getting red in the face and really taking on a teammate. Once those two people are in that situation, they're so emotionally engaged in it that it's very difficult for them to disconnect from it. It's actually a third party who's much more likely to kind of break the stalemate, to add some oxygen to the conversation. What if we were to look at it this way? Or I, I think you two are are arguing for different things. It's, it's actually the third person not minding their own business that's going to get you to a solution more quickly. So in chapter three, I go through each of these members of the Itty Bitty Shitty Committee and I dispense them one at a time with things like kind is the new nice or um, don't be a bystander, refuse to be a bystander, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And 
all of this was really, this book was written for me, right? I had to come up with something that I was willing to believe was justification enough Mm. to have conflict. Because as I said, I'm totally conflict averse. So those were my justifications and how I now think about it in a way that allows me to engage in conflict rather than avoiding it. Perhaps you've attempted to write a book and have found there's just too much conflict in your life to make it happen. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. You may not have a true, honest-to-goodness plan to help you make that happen, and that's where my friend Chandler Bolt comes in. He's put together some free training that will help you go from blank page to published author in as little as 90 days and do something he's done a half a dozen times or more again and again. The problem is writing a book is hard. You've probably already experienced some of that. And writing a book that makes money and gets read by people and not just your friends and family is nearly impossible if you don't have that proven system that you can follow. So I want to encourage you to check out Chandler's free training, again, on how to go from blank page to published author in as little as 90 days. You can sign up for this free training right now at readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. I know you love books, so that makes this the best part of this whole free training. When you sign up for it, you get a free copy of Chandler's book called Published, a free book that right now sells for $14.99 on Amazon and has over 500 five-star reviews, is yours free just for signing up for Chandler's free training. To grab your book and your spot for the next free training opportunity, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. You know, one sort of elephant in the room that I haven't addressed is how does someone who is as conflict averse as you, say, end up working <laughs> in, this, in this field uh, with conflict around you all the time, helping others sort of unravel all this? So I did a PhD in psychology and everybody in the different psychology has so many different disciplines. And so it was fascinating to see how the people who gravitate to these disciplines all have some personal connection to them. (laughs) So the, the funny one I can think of, my husband is a neuropsychologist and he was taking a class on vision. And uh, if you if you think about stereopsis, that's the ability to perceive depth. You know, the vast majority of us have stereopsis. It's all good. But the odd person doesn't. And it's very hard to walk about in a 3D world when you don't have depth perception. Mm. Um, And in his class, I forget the percentages, but it was like 60% of the students didn't have depth perception. No wonder they were studying vision. Well, same with me. You know, I got into studying group dynamics and organizational psychology because I suffered with them. So I think it was deeply personal. And then of course, it's easier to to deal with someone else's conflicts and learn the lesson for them Mm. and then apply it to yourself. So often I will say things at the whiteboard that I, as I'm saying them, I go, Oh, Leanne, you could stand to apply that yourself. (laughs) So so it's actually been a very, very, very effective Mm. way of teaching myself the lessons that I need to learn simply by listening to what I'm able to Mm. see and understand and detach from when I'm talking to a client. Mm, Very good. Well, Leanne divides the book into three parts. I hadn't mentioned that. The case for conflict is where much of our conversation has come from to this point. Uh, Part two is the conflict code, she calls it. Um, I'm wondering, Leanne, if you could share some practical tips for proactively establishing uh, an open line of communication and building trust specifically with our colleagues in, in in the work environment. Yeah, there's a quote I use in the book, which I had heard it. It's, um, I think it's probably some awesome African proverb or something like that. Mm. And the quote is, don't wait till you're thirsty to dig a well. Mm. 
And I just love that concept. So how many times have you been sitting at your desk and you get an email or the phone rings, it's somebody else in your organization, you don't know them from Adam, and they start telling you how they need this thing urgently, right? And (laughs) they're crisis becomes your emergency. And that's not a good moment <laughs> in which to uh, to start to build a relationship with mm. someone, nor is the moment where you're into a, a pitched battle about which priority is going to be uh, going to win the day. Mm. So the whole concept is dig the well before you're thirsty, build the relationship, create a connection, find ways to interact with people so that you're demonstrating. So I, I go through very practically in that chapter, in chapter four, the four levels at which we can establish mm-hmm. and strengthen trust with, with our colleagues. So let's just hit the four really quickly. One, creating a connection. Trust at the most fundamental level is about predictability. Mm-hmm. And we don't think about that often enough. Human brains are built to like want, crave, enjoy predictability. We like things that we know and we know how it's going to go. And when people behave in a way that surprise us, either they get upset at something we're surprised they're upset at, or they just, they behave in a way, their personality, their quirks are different than what we expect. That violates our trust at that basic connection level. So you want people to understand you. If you've done a Myers-Briggs or a Berkman Mm -hmm. profile, let them know. Here, here's kind of how I'm wired. I have an exercise on my website if, if people want to get it. It's free to download called the Owner's Manual. It's an actual printout. You can have a coffee with somebody and go through your owner's manuals together. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you put the dish in the dishwasher, you have to put it a certain way so the water hits the inside of a bowl, right? <laughs> so I say, here, here's how you actually get the best out of me. So creating a connection in the Owner's Manual is a fun tool folks can use. At the second level, it's about credibility because we're we trust people when we feel like they'll be competent, when they have credibility. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually establish credibility even before you have a track record by being open with people about, here's my experiences, here's how I think about these things, um, and by engaging them on, how do you think about these things? Mm-hmm. Asking, uh, humans are fascinating, right? Asking somebody else how to approach something will actually cause them to to uh, give you more credibility. It's crazy, mm-hmm. backwards, but it's true. So first level connection, second level credibility, third level reliability. And this is where trust is breaking down the most right now. Mm-hmm. Reliability is that you're, n- not that you can deliver, that's credibility, but that you will deliver, which is really about our shared priorities, that this is as important to you as to me. You've got my back on this. You're gonna come through. And again, we can establish Uh, trust and and reliability even before delivering by saying, okay, these are going to be my milestones and I'm going to check in with you. And and by being really transparent with somebody, if something's starting to go off the rails, being transparent with them long before uh, the deadline um, and saying, okay, this isn't going well. I wanted to bring it to you. So we've got time to course correct. So that's reliability. And and the top level is the one we always think about when it comes to trust, which is integrity. Mm. Um, And integrity is, first of all, trust being eroded at the level of integrity is less common than we think. But it's really about being vulnerable, um, not taking advantage of somebody else when they're vulnerable. Uh, And and there are great ways to establish your integrity even before it's really tested in in the moment. So the the whole idea of chapter four is how do I dig that trust well? Or or if we put it in the conflict debt, how do I put credit in my piggy bank with Mm -hmm. somebody else so that when I need to withdraw from the piggy bank uh, or when a conflict is going to test that, Mm -hmm. my credit rating with them, that I've already put stuff in the bank. So that's really pro 
proactive, practical stuff you can do to make sure. And let me do a thought experiment with you. Let's play this story out. And this is from my my previous book, You First. So we're going to explain and make it very real for people the importance of trust. So let's say uh, you have a big presentation you have to do and your boss says, okay, send it out to everybody on the team and get their feedback Mm. before we give it. So you send it out. And the first email back comes from that person, (laughs) the one on your team with whom you don't have trust. Mm. And you take another sip of coffee and you open the email and it says, I got the draft presentation. I caught a couple mistakes. I have some ideas for how to make it better. I'll come by your desk at three o'clock. And you immediately are like, oh, you caught mistakes, did you? Um, And you have some ideas. I bet you do, Mr. Smarty Pants. You always have ideas. And, you know, at three o'clock, you're hoping that you're overdue for your dental cleaning. And maybe you could catch a last minute cancellation. Um, And the person arrives at three o'clock. And you're already in a foul mood. And we know now that in that moment, you might even be able to control what you say, but your body language is going to give it away. Your pupils turn out to be more dilated. (laughs) And that person sees the dilated pupils, decides you're aggressive, and the whole thing goes up. Okay, now now what we're going to show is the importance of trust. So I want you to get that person completely out of your head. Erase Mm. them. Mm. And can you think of a person who you just trust implicitly? Like you just... You love this person. Every time you worked with them, it was amazing. Can you picture that person? Sure. So now email comes in. You open the email, says this. I got the draft presentation you sent. I caught a couple of mistakes. I have some ideas for how to make it better. I'll come by your desk at three o'clock. And pretty much everyone I talk to admits. It's got a completely different feel to it. (laughs) Yeah, right? So you're like, you caught mistakes. Oh, thank you. You always have my back. You have some ideas. I know. Isn't my work fascinating? (laughs) Um, And three o'clock, you're refilling the juju bowl on your desk (laughs) because your friends come. And that's how the human brain works. We interpret a neutral message through all the baggage and prejudice that we carry about a person. So the reason chapter four is so important and, and, you know, establishing that piggy bank, uh, that credit rating with people is so important is because they may create manufacture conflicts out of nowhere, because how they interpret the things you say, even neutral things you say, is going to be through the baggage of whether they trust you or they don't. And so I love that little thought experiment, because people can immediately relate to, oh, you're right, I really do read those. You know, when I come home, and my mother in law has cleaned my house and made dinner, I interpret it as, oh, my house wasn't clean enough for your precious boy, right? (laughs) And when my mother's done it, I'm like, oh, thank you. You know how busy I am, right? So we are not generous Mm. in our interpretations of things. So the reason you want to establish a line of communication and build trust before you need it is because it will get you in many, many, many fewer conflicts. You'll get the benefit of the doubt. So if you don't like conflict, the best thing you can do is establish that credit rating in advance. Mm. Would that naturally lend itself to something you talk about in the next chapter? You share some methods uh, for turning an existing adversary into an ally. Is it safe to say we make that a lot harder than it needs to be? Oh, yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> very, very safe. <laughs> um, yes. So let's do one really practical thing because then I think your listeners can try it uh, today mm. and, uh, and, and get value from it. Okay. So the, the number one magic wand of turning an adversary into an ally is validating them. Mm. And I go into this in depth in my latest YouTube how-to video on how to prevent an argument. So let's say somebody says something and it's probably that person again, right? This, <laughs> this adversary. Um, and they say something and your immediate voice inside your head is, that is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. Um, and that's what you want to say, but don't say that. <laughs> Instead, what you want to do is validate them, which feels very foreign and it takes some practice. And validating them, importantly, does not mean agreeing with them. It mm. simply is to say something that makes them feel heard and makes them feel understood because we get into conflict with people less because they don't agree with us and less because they're not going to go along with us and more because we don't feel heard and understood by them. And, and as grownups in organizations, if we feel heard and understood and that the situation still requires a different path, we're mostly okay with that. But if we, if they go a different path without me feeling heard and understood, that's where I get upset. So we're going to validate. Um, three quick ways. You can validate simply by uh, reinforcing the person for saying something. So you could say, you know, I really respect you for putting that on the table. That's a validation mm -hmm. that just is simply saying, you know, or, or wow, this is a really important topic. Doesn't mean that I agree with you, but it means it's important and, and I'm validating the fact that the person said that. Secondly, you can validate by paraphrasing. You think uh, we need to do a customer event, make it succinct, make it objective and just simply say back what they said. Third, you can validate them by uh, naming their perspective and kind of attaching what they said to their perspective. So uh, you're in marketing. So for you, the most important priority is a customer event. So all of these things that we say validate the person. You will notice the benefit of doing that in a nanosecond. <laughs> you will see the face structure change. You will see the shoulders drop. Um, and usually if it's a person who's an adversary, you'll also see them kind of do that head tilt where they're like, huh? <laughs> like when the dog looks at you like, what? Um, and they'll be like, did that person just, you know, say my truth, right? <laughs> um the second thing you do is you then ask a question to demonstrate that you're actually curious and that you're not just using some, you know, pat thing you learned on the read to lead podcast. So because <laughs> that's bad, you know, all these lines that used to be good, like help me understand, right. you know, all the in, in uh, sincere people have ruined all those. <laughs> so you have to do the second step, which is to say. Okay, so a client event, you know, what would be the most important thing you're trying to accomplish with a client event? Or how do you think that that would, uh, you know, benefit us in this quarter? Mm. So you ask a question to really show that uh, I want to understand, I want to figure it out. And it might take a couple of rounds of saying, okay, so for you, it's about this. And they say, well, sort of. Okay, sorry. No, tell me, tell me some more, you know, help me understand it. Um, and it may take a couple of rounds, but your goal is is to have their truth come out of your mouth. Mm. So even if they haven't been clear on their truth when they said this crazy thing at the beginning, they, they just said a client event and they didn't really know why. Once you get to their why and their truth comes out of your mouth, you will be much, much, much further along in having an ally there. Mm. Because of course, as humans, we think other people are smart when they say our words. Like, oh, wow, she's, she's on the ball, this one, because <laughs> all I'm doing is saying what he said, or at least felt or what he thought. And then the third step is to pivot. 
Mm. And in pivoting, what we do is we add our truth. So once their truth has come out of your mouth, then it's okay for your truth to come out. So we simply say, you know, that's so interesting because from from a sales perspective, I'm more worried about making sure our salespeople know the value proposition of the product. So I'm really thinking about an employee training event. You know, how do we make sure the clients understand the value proposition and the sales team understands the value proposition? What do you think are some of the things we could try? Mm. And then you're engaging them as an ally in solving a problem. So this validation technique, so validate first, ask a question and then pivot. Mm. This is conflict avoidance gold. <laughs> because, uh, and, and so let's just play it out for people at home as well. Your partner walks through the door. First thing out of their mouth is, I had the worst day. <laughs> <laughs> and first thing out of your mouth is, oh, you think you had a bad day. What you hear? That's invalidation. Mm. The, the dinner is terrible. And, and you go to your corners and, and binge watch on separate screens later. If instead walks through the door, says, I had the worst day. And you go, you did. What was terrible? Um, and they say, my boss made me put that thing in the presentation that I don't agree with. I go, oh, I know you hate that. Mm. Uh, you know, what What was it? What What did he make you put in there? Oh, did, you know, did anybody else agree with you? Right. And you ask mm. a little bit. Yeah, I, I get it. It really sucks when you have to do something you don't you don't believe in. You know what? Must be a full moon. I had the worst day too. <laughs> what do you think? Bottle of wine and Game of Thrones? <laughs> and it's amazing. Immediately when I say that, people realize that the whole evening is going to go differently. Mm. And that speaking their truth before you got to yours is fine. And I was giving this at a speech uh, uh, the other night. And somebody said, okay, Leanne, but come on, you know, you're exhausted at the end of the day. Your wife comes through the door. She says all this and you don't have the energy. You don't think to, I said, no, great. Because when you screw up productive conflict, it's the best opportunity in the world to strengthen trust. Because an hour later, you're just starting episode two in your Game of Thrones marathon all by yourself because you blew it. You go, oh, I didn't do that very well. And you pause it and you go upstairs and you go, you know what? I totally blew that. That's not how I want to show up. And I was so invested in my own crappy day that that I you know, didn't show up for you. Mm. You sit down. You make the motion uh, of like zipping your lips and you say, go. And when we screw up with our colleagues, with our boss, with our with our family members, it's the best opportunity to build trust back, to say, hey, this matters to me. You matter to me. I blew it. Vulnerability strengthens trust. And to say, I want to do it right. So I always tell people, don't be afraid of getting productive conflict wrong, because when you get it wrong, you get the best chance in the world to reinforce that it matters, to be vulnerable and strengthen your trust. Good things happen when you when you blow it, as long as you go back and revisit it. Hmm. This has been fascinating. I could I could talk to you or listen to you talk all day. <laughs> That's, I'm loving this. Uh, I have some questions in the time we have left, Leanne, that yeah. aren't directly related to the book. But before I do that, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we know? We didn't really get into part three, codifying conflict or any of that. Yeah. So I would love for folks to uh, get the good fight for, for section three, because mm. for people who don't like conflict, it's this 
process I've been developing over a number of years now that helps you systematize conflict and build a conflict habit in your organization so that you have a lot less conflict. So there's real facilitation techniques, exercises, all the instructions that you need in section three to be able to prevent conflict by systematizing some of the things that create the most frequent conflicts in your organization. So there's that's great stuff. We'll leave it to them to buy the book, but there's great stuff in that third section around how do you actually have a lot less conflict in your organization. Love it. Well, you uh, reference uh, some great books in your book. I'd be curious to know if there are a few that, that stick out to you over the last few years as having had a huge impact on you. And, and if you can, share why or how they impacted you as, as they did. Yeah, my, my coffee table now has three stacks and I now... <laughs> flow pile on the floor because I just love, love, love reading uh, business books. So let me hit a few. So when I was a graduate student eons ago, our organization development course had Peter Block's Flawless Consulting as a um, mm. as a book. And it really taught me some of these techniques around listening, creating allies. Um, it, it's an excellent, excellent book. And, and I think it is great for team leaders who just want to learn about that facilitation kind of mindset because as leaders we got to do less doing and <laughs> and we have to think of ourselves more as consultants and facilitators of a team of of people mm. so flawless consulting by peter block because i shifted from being an academic to being somebody who wants to write and and transform people's lives through uh keynote speaking and writing mm. made to stick by chip and dan heath oh, yeah. I just love that book. And of course, what's so great about that book is they follow their own rules in the book, right? So there, it, it's a master class in not only learning from what they say, but how they say it. So anybody who has to communicate, which as we all know is everybody <laughs> should read me to stick. Um, Brene Brown, Daring Greatly, because um, I got good at this job when I started being willing to be vulnerable and to say, you know, I'm not writing and speaking about conflict as a PhD in organizational psychology expert guru. I'm writing about, speaking about, teaching about conflict as Leanne Davy, the 47-year-old conflict avoidant <laughs> person with many stories about how she declared bankruptcy herself, mm. um, how she blew it with her husband and ended up having to be in marital counseling because she didn't know how to fight well. Mm. Um, and, and so it was only in seeing her TED Talk, reading her books, that I realized that I would offer a lot more to the world by being vulnerable than by being strong. And I guess the one right now that I've really in the last month is uh, Dory Clark's Entrepreneurial You, which is teaching me about having multiple revenue streams and building uh, as, an, as an expert, creating a business that, because of course, experts tend to be rather terrible <laughs> at, at being business people. And I'm an entrepreneur now for the last four years. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really great. Great. That's a fantastic book. So those are mine. That's my list. Mm. Uh, I love the list. Dory's been on the show a couple of times, including to talk about uh, that book. I don't know if you've seen it yet or not, but uh, just a couple of days ago, I watched Bernays Netflix talk. <gasps> oh, God, the elephant on the bicycle. <laughs> you um, have seen it. <laughs> for those listeners who haven't seen it, you know, somebody suggested that her book have on the cover an elephant uh, uh, riding a bicycle <laughs> and uh, and her name underneath. And just when she's saying, you know, as a woman who's who's come to terms with her body and all those things. But, but you know, I, I'm good. But 
I'm not that good, but you're going to put my name under an elephant's butt, right? You know, so, yeah, isn't she just the embodiment of of the kind of person you want to learn from? Somebody who's brilliant uh, and vulnerable and real, and oh, she's my goals. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of somebody you want to learn from, uh, as as a successful speaker. I would love to know what some of your tips are for delivering a talk that's impactful and, and memorable. I, this is in the last year or so where I came to understand that if I was willing to forego my dignity for the benefit of the audience, that good things would happen. And so I'll give you an example. I talk about those horrific posters of rowers who mm. are the ones convincing people that we're all supposed to be pulling in the same direction. And I think they do a lot of damage in creating a language in our teams that's a very conflict-averse language. And so I I started talking about the rowers. And for a while, I was just talking about them. And, And now when I do it, I stick my bottom uh, right out, and I I mock and mimic this sort of rowing motion, mm. and it it's right at the beginning of my talk, and and I it's unflattering, let me say, um, but but once I was willing to forego my dignity uh, in service of making points for the audience, and whether that be you know getting caught scrunching up my face, uh, telling people that I did end up. Uh, having to be in marriage counseling because I was so terrible at conflict, whatever it is, once I, I was willing to be real and and to embarrass myself in service, my speaking got more and more and more popular. I get more and more private emails afterward mm. about the connection I've made with people. Uh, and so, and the people now start to use the word profound and you don't get mm. to profound when you play it safe on stage or when you play it safe in your writing. Um, and you know, the good fight is my third book, my first book. Uh, if, if you want to see the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was a hard, hard learned lesson, but mm. Now I, I take it very seriously and find new and exciting and different ways to give up my dignity in service of the audience uh, all the time. I can certainly attest uh, to that. Uh, the one time last October, uh, I chose to be vulnerable on stage. And I, I think the, the, the audience was, was a very receptive audience, too, so that didn't hurt. But I got my first standing ovation. <laughs> that had never happened before. That, that just, I just literally got goosebumps up my arm, right? <laughs> that That's the payoff, right? Those yeah. people got something different because you were... So we're back to candor, right? Mm. Candor, my willingness to be uncomfortable for your benefit, mm-hmm. um, your candor with them got you a standing ovation. So it came right back at you in spades, but but it was for them, right? Yeah, totally, totally for them. I was um, very blessed by it, and and they seemed to be as, as well, which was my reason for being there in the first place. I wanted to yeah. help change Amazing. lives. So. Amazing. Well, um, I know the book has been out now for, what, a couple of months, I think? Yep. Yeah, um, almost. I, I know you're still in, in probably maybe for a little while book promotion mode. I'd be curious to know what's ahead for you and your team that, that you're really excited about. Yeah, what I'm really excited about is we're building out tools. To, so so I, I always talk about um, my business relative to Dr. Oz, which mm. probably from my, my, my physician friends are like, don't use that example. But, <laughs> but I think most of us relate. So my day job is as the cardiac surgeon for teams, right? Mm. I, I end up with teams uh, that are that are 
sick, very sick, and, and wheel them into the OR, crack them open. It's expensive. It's time consuming. And frankly, sometimes they die on the table, right? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, when I started, when I wrote you first six years ago, it was with this notion that I need to start um, the Dr. Oz show. I need the preventative medicine. I need to help people keep their teams healthy so that someday there's less I have to take into the OR. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I talked about that and I had I had books and I had blogs, but finally now what I'm really excited about is we're building out tools, online learning, e-facilitation of the stuff from chapter seven and eight, things that allow me to get this message out to people who can't afford the consulting, but who could afford to do some kind of an online learning program with their team or an e-facilitation, have me virtually in their room. Um, And I am so excited because people are excited about the good fight message. They know it's important, but there's only one of me to go around. So I'm really excited that we're going to have the tools to allow more and more and more teams to liberate themselves from conflict debt. You're taking some of those things you learned from Dory Clark and putting yes. them into practice, aren't you? <laughs> I sure am. I sure am. <laughs> well, the book, again, is called The Good Fight. Use productive conflict to get your team and organization back on track. Leanne, it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for taking time out of what I'm sure is a busy schedule to spend a few minutes with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it, Jeff. Wow, loved Leanne's advice on public speaking as well as her book recommendations. You'll find links to all those in the blog post created just for this episode, along with the book that I recommended early on called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. All that and more is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 268 for episode 268. For questions on this episode or feedback, you can always shoot me an email directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. On our website, there's also a place where you can click a button on the bottom right of the website to leave a voicemail if you'd rather go that route. Again, it's readtoleadpodcast.com. Don't pass up your opportunity for some free training on how to launch a book in as little as 90 days and get a free book when you do when you go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. Thanks for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss a single episode. That's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.